training is honestly ultra training. Like you go for a four hour run in the mountains and you bring snacks like that is ski training in the summer. And so as I was getting out and exercising again and like moving my body, that's what I gravitated towards was just like doing long days on the trails by myself. Um, and recognize that that was, I could probably race if I wanted to. And so in 20, like kind of late 2015 and then in 2016 started doing trail stuff again. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a pro ultra runner with Adidas Terex. She's a CTS coach, an exercise physiologist, and a science writer. Um, she's done a number of things running-wise, as well as some other stuff when she was younger. I'm going to bug her about. Uh, but most notably in recent years has two top 10 finishes at the Western States. And currently, I believe, unless I'm wrong, she'll correct me here in a minute, uh, has the fastest no time, I think, for a woman on the Tahoe Rim Trail. Uh, welcome to the show, Corinne Malcolm. I'm so happy to be here, and I do. I still do currently have the fastest no time for supported women on the Tahoe Rim Trail. So fingers crossed I get to hold on to that one for a long time. I don't know how long like FKTs stand for in, in ultras, especially like, you know, the more popular stuff, whether it's like somebody sets it and it really stays around for a while or whether it's just, you know, I have this perception that ultras are picking up in popularity, which may just be because I've had kind of a spate of ultra runners to talk to, but so I have this perception. I don't know whether it's like, oh, just people are going to be coming to the sport and then you, it's like, knocking down times or whether it's more established and, it, and it's much harder to actually, you know, accomplish a new FKT. It's a combination of those things. I always joke though, too. It's like, I want to get at the Colorado trail before Courtney DeWalter gets there because once she gets it, I don't know that'll be broken. Same with like Caitlin Gerben on the Wonderland trail here in the Seattle area. Like that's going to be a really hard time to beat. Chrissy, Chrissy Mail held the FKT on the Tahoe Rim trail before me. And you know, could have been close to an untouchable time, but I think that that was set in like 2015, 2016, I believe. So it was around for five years before I got to get after it. And I think that there's more time to shave off there for, for a woman. It's just going to take the person who wants to run 171 miles to go do it. Right. So, I mean, that begs the question, you think about timing, how much does like the logistical planning of this is a good weather week let's say going to trail because you know we're, we're before we got going we're talking about like the difference between trail and road and, and time variations both from altitude and then obviously you know if a trail is sloppy then you're going to lose time and it becomes you know monumental over 170 mile haul you know it's maybe if you lose 10 percent during a 5k like the actual time limit 
not huge, but you start multiplying that and the margin of error seems like it could be, you know, pretty significant. Yeah. So I think it's, um, there, I think it really is dependent on the the route that you're going after and like what the norms and weather are. Like it's why, you know, you can't go on the Wonderland Trail at a certain time because it's still snowy. You are, you can't go too late into the fall with Tahoe Rim Trail because it gets really windy and it gets really snowy. So I had watched Magda Boulay the year before go after the Tahoe Rim Trail and actually have that issue where it was really, really windy and really, really cold. And then I had the issue where we delayed the Tahoe Rim Trail for six weeks because of smoke. We couldn't run because our, for- our national forests were completely closed for weeks on end. And so I postponed for six weeks and it was like, I postponed and then we postponed again. Um, And then I was like, we're not going to do it. I'm going to do it unsupported with my friend. And we're just going to go have a fun time on it. That got smoked out. So by the time we actually got after it, we had gone from August 28th being our start date to like middle of October being our start date. And then the week after I did it, they had like 120 mile per hour winds on the like ridge, ridge tops like a week later. So we like snuck it in perfectly in between everything. Um, part of that's luck and part of that's probably just patience and the, the ability to be flexible. Like I live, I live or lived rather in San Francisco. And so I could like kind of wait it out and go after it once the weather actually kind of settled down and we could get on the trail again. You know, maybe it's just my brain spazzing out a little bit, but sometimes I think about those kind of efforts and, and, you know, setting new, new record times. And like you said, just sneaking it in just so, and part of me goes, my, my brain starts to focus on like luck versus destiny. And like, do you like this, do you have those stories that swell up in your mind as you're, you know, delaying and, or do you just focus on the logistics? I mean, I think it's, it was really hard to be like, I'm, am I too tapered? Like when we were driving up to do the actual attempt, I texted my coach and I was like, Hey, like, I don't care if we get the FKT or not. I just want to go run around the lake. And like, I just want to complete it. I want my season to be done. I want to stop dragging this out. Like I want to, I want to do this thing and then get to take a break. Um, like I want to go climbing with my, with my husband and with our friends. Um, and so I think it's, it was easy to like doom and gloom it and think it was canceled a bunch and have the wind taken out of your sails. But at the end of the day, it was like, I was going to do what I could. I was going to be hopeful that we could start, but, um, you couldn't like dwell on that for too long by any means, because it wasn't productive. I I'd like your opinion on, so something I noticed when I was racing collegiately was that the races where I could let go of the desire for a particular outcome. I mean, I, you make a plan, you say, this is my pace and all, all that stuff, but then you just go, yeah, like I'm going to have a good time, which is exactly what it sounded like you said. You're like, I just want to run around the lake. Like I don't care anymore. Do you find that that is the case for yourself that if you can find yourself in a place of like, I really don't care anymore not a, I'm pretending not to care to get the thing, but I like a, a genuine place of, no, like it's cool, whatever. Do you find yourself, you know, running your better times in that kind of mindset? I mean, I think that's my approach to racing, generally speaking. Like I'm a very process oriented person. Um, and so, and I tell my athletes this as well. It's like, okay, what do I need to do? Like I need to check the boxes every day. 
like that's a success. Like those are my little goals. And it's like, okay, in the race, if you take care of yourself, like I'm eating, I'm drinking, I'm monitoring, but I need to monitor like the result, the result you want should come from that. I think, as opposed to focusing on the result itself, like that's how I was in high school. That's how I was about, you know, like what being class rank in high school. I was like, oh, if I do my homework and I show up to school, like I should end up in this position. And that's the same with racing. It's not so much the like, it's not to say that I'm not competitive or I don't want to perform well. It's the idea that like, I'm taking care of the little things and I'm confident enough that if I think if I have a good day and I take care of myself, that the result that I think I'm capable of, which hopefully is performing well and being competitive will be a natural result of doing all those little things. So I think that was similar to the FKTs are different in the sense that like, I'm not going to race against a hundred other people and, you know, try to be at the front of that group. The FKT, like it's, it's, there's only one, there's an, a positive outcome and, an, and a not, I guess, negative outcome, right? Like in a race, it's like, oh, I'm going to be top 10. I'm going to run under this time, mm-hmm. whatever in an FKT. It's like, I either get the FKT or I don't get the FKT. And so I think that sets it up a little bit different mentally where, in which it's like, I mean, maybe that's something I have to evaluate, right? Like in racing, I've gotten to the point where I can say, I'm doing the little things. This is the outcome I expect. I don't have to focus on the outcome. In FKT, it's like, I I would love to run the Wonderland Trail, but I worry that I can't beat Caitlin. And if there's only, if it's only beating Caitlin or not beating Caitlin, it's, that's a harder thing to like Mm -hmm. not become outcome oriented. And so I don't know. Now I'm going to spiral on that probably for a little bit. <laughs> oh no, I, I said you did a bad place. No, I, I you've got all you've got all the pieces right. You, you like I I understand. Believe me, I understand. Even though I, I don't perform at the same level you do, I, I think we all worry about similar things and our own particular flavor of those things. Um, but like you've got all the pieces. You know, just the ability and the practice to just. Let's focus on, are my shoes tied? Are my socks dry? Like, do I have enough food? Did I take in my fuel at the right place? Am I, you know, drinking the right thing at the right time? You know, did I, did I bring my anti-chafe bomb? Did I lose it on the trail? Like, do I need to get another one? What, just all the little things. Sometimes I think it, it's a, pro, like, it's a, it's two parts. One, taking care of all those things really does take care of it. But then also, sometimes I feel like it's, um, we are Linus and that's like our safety blanket, right? Like we can just, we can just focus on those things and hold on to our safety blanket of routine. And then we don't have to even worry about the other thing because our mind's occupied. It's not like reaching a place of Zen mastery where you're like, oh, I'm like, I really don't care about the world. You, you just I mean, things fill your can mind still go wrong. Things. Right. Like things can still go wrong. And that's like, you still have to like, you can't like, you still have to work through that when that happens. And that's like that psychological flexibility piece of like, you, there's still a box to check there for sure of like being able to adapt when things, when, when anything in your little checklist falls apart. But I still think you can like probably keep that within the security blanket maybe. So given that you, you know, obviously participate yourself and coach people, is there, is there a hurdle or a stumbling block, something that goes wrong that sends people down that like 
mental death spiral more often than anything else? Is there anything that stands out as like, this is the most common way to, to send people down a, like a negative mental spiral? I honestly think that one of the most common things people do is they, um, they get focused on that outcome goal. They focus on time. I want to run sub 24 hours. I want to run sub eight hours. I want to run whatever. And they, and they know what the splits are and they know at this aid station, they need to be at this time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if they're not at that time, they fall apart. Like how can they reach this goal? Like they don't have a va- like they don't have a value-based goal. That's going to help steer the ship when that time-based goal, that outcome-based goal falls apart. And mm-hmm. so, you know, very, I feel like that's very philosophical, but, um, I do think that that's the biggest thing. Like I tell athletes, no time goals. Like we're going to set up a time chart for your crew because your crew needs to not miss you at aid stations, <laughs> but then the time goals aren't for you. Like you get to think about time at mile 80. You get to think it's about time at mile 35, you know, wherever you're going into like that last, you know, quarter, maybe last, I don't know, some small percentage of the race, last 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, then you can use whatever that arbitrary time is to like get you to the finish. But I think a lot of athletes get, unless you're like going for world records and this is like the only focus in your life, I think. And I think it's cool to run a sub 2,400. I think it's, I think these goals are not invaluable, but I think it's really easy to be so focused on that, that outcome goal that when that thing falls apart, cause you have a low, cause it's an ultra and you're going to have a low, like when that thing falls apart, I think it's really hard for athletes to like correct and get back on board. What I think is interesting about also human psychology is like our desire at least runners, I would say probably other athletes as well, but runners to like grab onto these particular numbers and be like, like, this is it. Like, this is, you know, like you said, sub 24 hour, 100 mile race, um, you know, the sub four minute mile, like there's, we, we come up with these nice numbers. And if I'm like, I'm under this nice number, then I feel validated. Yeah. But it's like, if you, if you step back, that setup is arbitrary to some degree, not entirely, but, but to some degree it's arbitrary. Well, how, you know, like how, I I think a, a, a more realistic way to approach it is one, like what gradation or like what degree of separation is your current fitness from whatever thing you're after number one, but then number two, how, where does that thing fit in the grand scheme of performance? The second part, I don't think is as quite as informative for an individual athlete, but at the same time, give some context. So say like she wouldn't, so I'm, I'm, I'm not putting words in her mouth, but I had a guest on Sherry Donahue uh, a few weeks ago who runs ultras and she is a self-described cutoff chaser like she runs in the back she's just trying to make it to the end before the race uh, calls it a day if sherry says oh i want to do a sub 24 hour 100 mile is that realistic for her i don't think it depends on the race but but it could depend on the race right so but it's like in the context of where she is versus like the gradation of all ultra runners and how many are able to accomplish 
said task, mm-hmm. like I feel like that gives you a little more context to, am I setting myself up for failure? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think you know if if you if you can, if your fitness really says that you can run a five hour marathon, but you want to break sub three, like you're probably gonna be unhappy with that marathon. Yeah. Right. But it's like, okay, are these stepping stones? Like you might start at a four forty-five and then run a four and then run a three thirty. Like this, these things are not impossible by any means, but it's like, you, I think you can elucidate from someone's training, like what's within the realm of possibility for them. At the same time, I have athletes who they're faster than me, but like often, like there are athletes who will get to a race and like I think they, I think they can, they're underperforming sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's like, I know what you're capable of. Like, what, what do we need to crack so that you can actually run to your potential? Like, what does that actually look like? Um, because I've seen your threshold workouts. I've seen your long runs. Like, I know, I know what you're doing. So what, what, what mistake is happening once the gun goes off, you know, like where are we falling apart there or falling short there? Um, because I've definitely seen athletes, I've seen peers in the same boat where it's like, I think you're underperforming based on your training, but that's the thing about ultra running is like, there's no one way to do it. And there's, there's, you know, the marathon PRs do not equate to your 50 mile PR or a place in a hard race, right? Like there's many other factors at play that are going to determine performance at something like a hundred, right? The heat, the altitude, the course profile, your ability to eat or or fuel yourself or hydrate and take care of those small tasks, like all those things all of a sudden are what are what are going to cause problems on race day mm-hmm. you know and and a lot of those things you can train away like a lot of those things if you're properly trained if you're properly trained for the course for like the specificity of the race you can train away some of those mistakes but at the same time like that's why i think experience in a lot of ways can reign supreme in all training i think it's why all trainers in their 40s are winning races mm-hmm. um, it's because they've got that experience under their belt um, to handle when things go wrong, to, to take care of things before they go wrong. Um, but I think kind of going back to your question about performance and time and maybe like setting someone up for success or failure, Mm -hmm. um, has a lot to do with like, you know, not falling into the comparison trap, but being honest with yourself. And then I think setting up a, like a stretch goal and then like probably like an A goal and a B goal Mm -hmm. so that, you know, when it comes to the race, if you do need that outcome goal to kind of drive you forward during it, it's like, okay, like, you know, maybe that, that a goal is that thing that's like right at the cusp, that stretch goal is the thing that's like, like if everything goes perfectly type of thing, or even a little bit beyond that, um, like a lofty goal. And then, a B, you know, a B or C goal are things that are like, well, within your, your realm of ability. And that could even be finishing. I think finishing the race, um, be it a 5k or a 200 miler, like that can be, that can be the bottom goal or the back goal or whatever it is. Um, and then I think you can have degrees that work up all the way to your stretch goal, as far as how are you going to define success? And then like having value oriented goals, like what's most important to you, I think is kind of that side, that side conversation that becomes really important. Once again, like very philosophical, not, not necessarily physiological at all, but I mean, I don't know what percent of the sports, you know, quote unquote mental. So I think it's important to, to recognize that there is kind of this feel like philosophical, psychological conversation going on. 
I mean, if you listen to my eighth grade coach, it's 90% mental and 10% physical. So, you know, like that's, that. it's pretty, I think it's pretty accurate. It's just, you know, your mind will will you through a, a 50 mile race, even if you haven't trained 40 kids, it's just a strong enough mind. Yeah. I mean, I have athletes who average like 40 miles a week. Mm-hmm. They have like slightly bigger weeks with some long runs or a targeted race or something who can run hundreds successfully. And I've got athletes who put in 120 mile weeks and can run hundreds successfully and everything in between. So I think that's the, and, and aren't like, you know, not to say, and, and are performing maybe at comparable levels even. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yes, part of that's talent, part of that's quality over quantity, part of that's understanding, you know, maybe that athlete's fragile and tra- like breaking themselves constantly is not going to elicit a good race result either. So I think it's, you know, that is a, the beauty in maybe ultra and trail running is that there isn't really one way, even at the, like the upper echelon of the sport, none of us are training the exact same volume, intensity, all that kind of stuff. Like it's, there's, there's little variations, I think on the theme there. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's one of the hardest thing for maybe new people to running at any distance to kind of come to is like, there is a certain amount of increase in mileage that you need to do to increase your, you know, aerobic capacity, mm-hmm. just point blank, big aerobic capacity. You got a big aerobic engine you're going to be more, you're going to perform better to your own ability than otherwise, but it comes with limits. And I've talked to, I don't know how many different people, you know, some people who can maintain higher mileage, some people who cannot. And regardless of like, I like, now I'm forgetting his, his name right now. Um, Previous guest who, who was like um, a pretty good 10 K runner in college like 28s, somewhere around there, 28, 29 minutes, um, who kept like breaking every year as they, you know, the coach wanted to run 80, 100 mile weeks. And his senior year, he finally was like, I'm going to run 40 miles a week. I'm not going to run more. And then had his best year because he wasn't broken all year. Yeah. And it's like, he was able to perform better than his, but, but like, I think sometimes people want to, people hear that and they go, okay, well then all I need to do is run 30, 40 miles a week. And that's all I need to do. And I'll be awesome. Like, Mm -hmm. well, no, you may actually need to run more miles. We don't know until we figure out more about your particular, like physiological stressors and ability to adapt and recovery and and all those kind of things. Yeah, it's definitely, it's not, you know, a one size fits all training plan or training program. Um, people get stuck in comparison, like so-and-so is doing this, so I should do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it takes kind of finding where that limit is and mm-hmm. understanding what your goals are too. Like I've seen athletes who it's like, I'm convinced not my personal athletes, like peers in, in the sport who, um, or friends where I'm like, I think you could train less and do better. Or I think you could train. I think you have capacity to train a little bit more consistently and do better. It's like, I see potential in people, and it's mm-hmm. like, ah, I wish I could, it's not my place to tell you what you should or shouldn't do. But like, if I was in charge, I would tweak it this way or that way. So I think mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting to kind of see, to, to bear witness to that, I guess mm-hmm. is what I would say. Um, but you know, people are going to people can't, can't control them all. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, thinking about comparisons though, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, I, I read an article, I think it was on, I run far, you, you published recently, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, talking about 
running as we age and you know the, the physiological changes that we go through. Um, so feel free to fill us in both with some numbers and physiological facts, as well as my curiosity in terms of um, you know comparing yourself to your younger self or not. I mean, there's a point when we all reach if we continue to run through our lives where we're basically trying to slow down as little as, as we can rather than get faster. And, um, you know, I think I find myself already there uh, just given my background and my interest. I, I like shorter stuff. I do like 5K, 10K. It's going to be near impossible for me to maintain the same kind of training I was doing when I was in college. So I want to ask you about what does happen and then how do you deal with the game, so to speak, of competing with now instead of competing with the past? Yeah, it's super interesting. It was a fun article to write, but also like we had a lot of back and forth with with our editing team. So I write them, I write a monthly column for I Run Far called Running on Science. And it comes out the third Tuesday of every month, I think. Um, and we've been doing it since like 2018, which kind of feels weird that we've been doing this for years now. Um, so I've written a lot of things for that space. Um, but the aging athlete was an interesting topic in that we've touched on it in bits and pieces um, in different articles. I read about joint replacement. I've written about cardiovascular health, um, kind of some implications out of some narrative papers that have come out from like Nick Tiller and other such folks. Nick's brilliant. I think he's one of the, the smartest guys. Um, kind of on the outs like the outside of the sport a little bit like he himself runs ultras but he works um at ucla doing respiratory science um there he's a phd super brilliant but um trying to figure out you know what are the things the biggest variables for folks and i think it's it's natural like the biggest declines generally are related to lean muscle mass um and part of that's largely due to hormonal profiles. Women have ha, go through menopause. So generally speaking, we go through it before men do, before our, our, our male peers, um, in that it's harder for us to maintain muscle mass starting even in our forties, um, potentially. And then for men that generally starts at later, like in their sixties, um, and declines at such and such percent, I'd have to pull up the article in front of me, mm-hmm. um, you know, every decade thereafter. And so that's going to be related to, being able to main, maintain that high VO2 max as well. Like lean muscle mass is, is pretty closely tied to, to VO2 max in that it's like milliliter per, per uh, kilogram, generally speaking, or per minute, per minute per kilogram. Um, and so that muscle mass is really important. Um, I think that's the biggest thing that kind of sends people slowly down injury. Like we recover more slowly. Um, we don't synthesize protein as well, which is part of that recovery process. Um, that's where like ingesting protein at the right time is one of those ways that we can battle, like battle that, like it becomes way more important. Lifting weights becomes way more important once again, because you're trying to generate protein synthesis. You're trying to, to increase that, to maintain muscle mass and maintain just like healthy, healthy function in general. Um, and I think those are, and then being able that I think allows you to maintain training. And that was the other biggest factor we saw was like being able to maintain some training volume and some intensity was the biggest thing that kind of um, prolonged, I would say like that success in sport or pro like prolonged the slowing down period was being able to maintain training because it could be motivational. It can be time restrictions. It can be, um, ageism. Ageism is a huge factor here. And that was a really interesting part of the conversation that when I started writing it, I wasn't really thinking about, but 
through communicate, communicating with their editorial team and some um, masters in the community. That was a big, like ageism is a huge factor as far as like keeping people motivated in sport. They don't feel like they belong in sport. They feel like the cutoffs are too hard. It's like, why would I do this? Um, they're told that they're frail, like all these things, like every single article I read literally started with like decline, like this really, you know, kind of aggressive, like you're declining Mm -hmm. mentality, as opposed to being like, okay, like exercise is good for your health in general. How do we allow that to occur for as long as possible? And we, you know, we heard from all sorts of athletes in the aftermath of that, um, article coming out as far as like how they felt about it, how they felt about their own aging and their own performance. We had athletes who they ran in their twenties and thirties and then took some time off and then actually been setting like lifetime PRs because they came back as a master's athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they, and they feel grateful that they, you know, didn't run in college because they might not, they wouldn't win that comparison game. Mm-hmm. I personally work with an athlete who was a very fast marathoner in his twenties and now is in his sixties. And there are days like that. I feel like that's what we've worked on for a lot of the last two years is not feeling bad about himself when like he still is going out and like running like eights. Like he runs faster than me most days. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he was a very fast marathoner in his twenties and 40 years later, you know, he's not going out and running six thirties all the time. And right. so like that comparison, like, so the ageism from the society, from society and community. And I think, and that self-comparison more than like cross peer comparison are the hardest things for people. Um, once again, like I'm sitting here as an almost 32 year old. So I've got, you know, I have decades maybe before this, you know, is me. And that was another comment too, is a lot of people felt like, yes, forties, like technically forties considered a master's athlete, but man, 40 seems young. Um, like just kind of talking about how, like, we think this conversation should actually be about sixties and seventies and eighties, um, which I, I don't disagree with. I'm just, you know, I'm here to report what the literature says Mm -hmm. and then, start a conversation around what the literature is saying. Um, So kind of big points there are that, yes, we are, you know, fighting decline. And that sounds really negative. Um, And generally speaking, that's predominantly linked to things like our, our, the slowing down of jet, like regeneration, protein synthesis, all that kind of stuff. So some of that we can't necessarily fight. um, But it actually turns out that like, continuing to train is one of our best ways to, to stave it off. Um, and that there are people who are super satisfied masters athletes. And I think that's, that is really great to hear. Um, I think that I, we actually, we had a comment on a trail society podcast recently in which we were talking about a woman who set an age group record for like, uh, 70 to 74, I want to say, and like the indoor mile, sharing like a 631 indoor mile, like, mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and I think one, one of us made a comment of the, to the, to this, like made a comment along the lines of like, ah, uh, like we all said like, oh, I hope I'm running when I'm 70. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm, I would love to run a sub 10 minute mile when I'm 70. And I think mm-hmm. we said like, oh, I hope that I'm like, you know, not using a cane when I'm 70. And we had a, a someone write into us and say, um, you know, like that was like, I just want you to know, like, we are like really happy masters athletes, blah, blah, blah. And I I get it. Like, I get like, um, I want to like help support masters athletes and make them feel like they're not, um, like fighting a losing battle that they like, Mm -hmm. like that running is fulfilling. Racing is fulfilling that they've got competitive. Some of them want to go, and this is all runners in general. Some of us want to go smell the flowers and some of us like have time goals and place Mm -hmm. goals. And I think that's independent of age. 
right? Like let's, you can enjoy running in any of those various shapes and forms. But I think we oftentimes lump masters athletes into the, like, if they have any competitive drive, we like, I don't know. It's kind of like, um, what am I, what word am I looking for here? It's kind of like patronizing maybe mm-hmm. to be like, oh, you're so cute. You're like, so oh, that's cute. Yes, exactly. What I thought of. And it's like, we, we need to not do that. Right. We like, we need right. to, I think we need to encourage, like create some different cutoffs or say there's a 50 K and a 50 miles is a Liza Howard recommendation at a race. Like let's, let's make the 50 K cutoff the same as the 50 mile cutoff. So that if there are people in the 50 K, like the, the course has to be marshaled that entire time. Why not allow the 50 K runners who might, who might not be able to make that 50 mile cutoff, but can make the 50 K cutoff to do that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of trying to find ways to support and encourage, you know, our sixties, seventies, eighties year old runners to feel like they're part of the community as opposed to being patronizing. And, um, I feel like through trail society and talking about all these topics, we've had a lot of like, oh yeah, we, we were, we were really wrong about that or how we talk about this is inappropriate. So, um, I feel like it was a, a lesson in ageism for, for me writing the article just in general to understand like how different communities feel about getting older and what it's like to be a master's athlete. There's a lot to unpack there. There's uh, a lot. Sorry, that was <laughs> my rant on ageism. No, that's fine. Um, you know, first, just talking about uh, masters starting at forty. I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that cutoff, generally speaking, because um, I, I I think you know there are obviously exceptions in the ultra running community, but generally speaking, uh, Tom Brady aside, most professional athletes people at the peak of their physical fitness are going to be sub 40 just yeah. across the board sometimes like 25 is you know it's like yeah and ultra and ultra endurance sports i think it skews a little bit longer just because right. there's something to be said about years of even like nordic skiing and that kind of stuff cycling right. like you'll see athletes performing at a super high level maybe even peaking in their 30s so i think it extends our Yes, for for, in, for endurance runners, I, I think peak is closer to 35 and it's getting a little bit older as, as we're getting, I think, better with nutrition, better with um, being smart about recovery and avoiding injury and all that kind of stuff. So like, I get it from the other side of being, you know, I'm not yet there, but, you know, we'll so- be soon or sooner than I think so, you know, I, I can kind of peer that direction. And, and go like I get it. Being on the other side of that, you're like, I'm, I'm locked out. I'm forever this masters athlete. But again, I think it comes back to like, in part that looking at, I come from a math background, so this is just my bend. Looking at like the gradations of times and and you know where am I on the distribution and just being realistic about like this is usually the performance of somebody my age. And then how do I stack up? Mm-hmm. you know coming back to that um but some of the recommendations in the article talking about like changing cutoffs or having like easily visible uh fkts for age groups yeah, in a like particular eight, course yeah or, like age course records i think are right. really cool western right. states does a great job with that for example we really like western states really celebrates its age group records. For example, um, Ragna DeBotz set an age group. She set the master's record as Mm -hmm. she's 42 at Western States last year when she was second, like in one of the fastest times ever. So it's like, 
I think it's really cool to celebrate that. I think they've also celebrated, you know, when it's like, oh, they're going after the 60 to 65 year old record or the Mm -hmm. 70, the 70 plus record like that. I think it, I think that is cool to celebrate. Like I want, when I ran Leadville in 2017, Mm -hmm. the person who got the most round of applause was the one guy in the 70 plus age group Mm -hmm. because they do, they do the top male, top female for the whole race. And then they do top three age groups or the age groups. Like that's, that's the awards they give out. And he got by far a much louder round of applause than like Ian Sharman and Devin Yanko who won the race. Like that was very, very cool. So I do think like that, that stuff is really beneficial. You know, in some ways, I think that talking about masters athletes, especially as you get into older categories. So uh, for you, the listener, and I know you didn't do uh, track collegiately or pretty sure you didn't in cross-country skiing, I believe, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, there are open, uh, open track meets that you can go to that are collegiate meets. Um, typically the higher up the school is towards like division one and the NCAA, the less likely it is to be an open meet, but there are plenty of open opportunities for people to go compete uh, at any age. And there's like, like hundred meter, 200 meter sprints. And then they're age graded. So like, if you want to do the hundred meter, you actually aren't always doing a hundred meters. Like you'll have a shorter distance depending on your age and it's it's great it's great to try to make it fair so i think you know there's some exposure in like looking at that and you go oh like these guys are having trouble running 100 meters but then if i think about like endurance runners like who is the epitome of i guess this is the thing i say to myself it's like what is the core of an endurance runner to me the words i will endure Mm -hmm. simply whatever it is, who else is the embodiment of that than somebody in their 70s or 80s who's still out there doing it? You know what I mean? The Dipsy is so cool. Have you seen, you've seen the Dipsy race mm -mm, maybe? No. It happens in June every year in in, uh, Mill Valley, California, so just north of San Francisco. And it's an age and gender graded event mm-hmm. and it starts from mill valley they go up the dipsy so it's, it's called dipsy it's on the dipsy trail and it runs from mill valley to stinson beach so it's like six miles i want to say seven miles mm-hmm. um basically climbs one it's basically a big climb and then a big descent more or less but they start in waves and it's age graded and gender graded so you'll have like 70 year old women and like nine year old boys starting together Mm -hmm. and the top it's so you know the fast basically like based on gender and age the fastest people are starting at the back and they've got to run through all these people and it's you get a black shirt if you're in the top 30 with like with your finishing number on it and so it's Mm -hmm. a big deal to get a black shirt I mean like a thousand people do this race it's kind of wild and oftentimes the person with the fastest course time doesn't win because it's the person who gets across the finish line first that wins Mm -hmm. and so routinely it's like a, you know, 50 set, you know, 56 year old woman or a 62 year old guy. Like it's really kind of, it's very cool to watch. And then like, you know, Alex Varner, who's in our sport, um, or has, I think he's officially technically, re- I think he's officially retired now, but you know, he's had the fastest dipsy time for years. 
and he'll be like second or maybe third. And then like in fourth, will be like a 12 year old boy or, you know, like a 12 year old girl. Like, it's really cool to see like this, like, they, you know, the top 30 people to make it across the line at the end of it. And it's like a bunch of old guys, a bunch of ladies, like a bunch of like kids. Like, it's pretty funny to like, look at this like cohort of, of athletes based on this, like gender and age graded. Mm-hmm. Like it's really, it's, it's the only race that I know that does it. And it's like made even more complicated because the course is like pretty narrow. So like passing is very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like very wild to watch, um, to watch it every year. It happens. It's generally like the second weekend of June. Um, and it's very short and fast and furious, but it's like a big deal. Like you have to apply. There's generally bribes involved to try to get in. Like it's, <laughs> it's a whole thing, but it's like, it's like, it's uh, like the Mount Marathon of mm-hmm. the Bay area, essentially, where it's like a lot of locals, but some fast people will come in and it's a really cool, cool race. But I love the age grading and the gender grading of it just to kind of like see what all, how it all plays out. Like it's a very cool finish line. That see now, like I I hadn't heard of the race before and now you're going to go deep dive into it. Well, now we're deep dive, but also I'm like, I I have, I have like secret plans of becoming a race director and I've had race director, uh, at least one race director on the show that I know I can go to him. Um, Ian, gosh, Ian, what's your last name? He's the race director for uh, Run Ottawa. It's like a, a race with like 40,000 people in it. Cool. Um, anyway, Ian Frazier, he's a former pro triathlete. Um, so now I'm like, like I talk to people, I hear these different uh, cool like race ideas. The uh, Twilight 5000, which is run yeah. by Tracksmith. Um, I'm like, I want to do that. And I'm like, I want to just just quirky things it's like quirky but very accessible i mean that's that's the cool thing about that race idea right it's like most races 99 percent of races the fastest people are at the front at the finish line trying to win right yeah whereas that setup i mean it's a wild card i think that's really cool because how many yeah. times do you, you know, what other opportunities do you have for such a mix of people to try to be the first across the line or the top 10 across the line or whatever, you know, like. Yeah, it's super cool. It's, it's why biathlon. So I did biathlon. I skied in a circle yeah. with a firearm for a long time or basically a circle. Um, and that's why I think, although I love cross-country skiing in general, like that's biathlon is so interesting because like yeah, you can be really fast, but man, if you have a bad day on the shooting range, mm-hmm. like you can be in the last stage of a, of a race head to head even, and like have someone have a bad day and the race results can change dramatically. And so I think that that provides like a little bit more engagement to have this other component to the race that I don't know, like, it's not, it's not a given that you're, you've got the highest VO2 max you're going to win type yeah. of thing. That's cross country skiing. Oftentimes, besides there, there are tactics obviously in any of these right. sports, but I do think that like the shooting, having the skill component added to it, makes it very interesting. Um. So maybe before we go, I, I did want to ask you about the the transition from cross country skiing to biathlon. You were with the national team, I think, for a while, um, and then into ultras. So I mean, what? What's that journey like? Yeah, so I, I mean, I skied collegiately at Montana State 
I mean, I ran on loan for the cross country team. It was kind of a comical experience in which I trained with the ski team, but raced with the cross country running team. Mm. And as you can imagine, did not make me, uh, maybe phenomenally well-liked on the women's cross country team. Cause I didn't go to any practices. Um, yeah. but I had a good time. It was really fun and skied collegiately and actually dropped out of school to pursue biathlon. Um, kind of got an offer to go be part of the junior national team. I was still a junior athlete for one more year. Um, so dropped out of school, packed up my car, was like, maybe I'll come back next year. Maybe I won't like worked it out with the athletic department so that if I did come back, I wouldn't be forfeiting eligibility, um, by being gone for this year. And so, because in skiing, you have a five-year clock. Once your clock starts, you have five years to compete, complete your eligibility. And in Nordic skiing, you can't be older than a certain age. Um, all of Nordic skiing is division one. And so I think it falls under a bunch of those rules. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it protects athletes from like older European athletes coming in as like 28 year olds and destroying everyone. So there's an age cutoff for collegiate, collegiate skiing, um, which wasn't going to be an issue, but I had five years to compete if I wanted them. And so I left, um, made junior worlds that year, went to Europe, uh, raced European championships, podiumed at European championships, um, made the national team. So I dropped out of school and eight months later, I made the senior national team. So I wasn't going back to school. I moved into the Olymp Olympic training center in Lake Placid, um, which was a super wild experience. So like, I am like very good friends with like all the obscure sports superstars, like <laughs> Alana Myers, um, who's now the most decorated, um, black winter Olympian, I think of all time. Um, winning medals in the bobsled again this year. So I feel like that's a really weird niche. I'm going to call them celebrities, um, to have lived with for three years. Um, so was on the team from 2010 until 20, like 14 ish. I based, I, I did like going into the 2014 Olympics, essentially lost my spot on the team. Cause I had moved back to, um, Montana to kind of seek out like a more like emotionally stable place to train. The Olympic training center is pretty intense. And like the team, I think is in a much healthier spot than it was at that point. Um, but basically it was really burnt out. And so instead of going to the Olympics in 2014, I enrolled in 21 credits at school and went back to school full-time. I was really like sick, burnt out, you, whatever you want to call it, um, likely fits, you know, every criteria for overtraining syndrome, mm -hmm. very last stop on the train there, um, pretty broken. And so took a bunch of time off and went back to school. Um, but ski training is honestly ultra training, like you go for a four hour run in the mountains and you bring snacks. Like that is ski training in the summer. And so as I was getting out and exercising again and like moving my body, that's what I gravitated towards was just like doing long days on the trails by myself um, and recognize that that was, I could probably race if I wanted to. And so in 20, like kind of late 2015 and then in 2016 started doing trail stuff again, which turned into ultra stuff um, because I think it was my dad. I'm sure I've been quoted as saying this before. Um, I did my first, like I did like a 50 K and some like sky, sky running type stuff. And my dad pulled me aside and was like, you know, Corey, I think if, I think you'd be really good if you went longer. Like, I think, I think that would really suit you very well, probably cause I'm stubborn and I've been stubborn since I was very small. Um, so went from, you know, doing that to, to diving into the ultra community just to see if I could do it. And I think that was 2016, that summer ran my first ultras and it kind of spiraled out of control from there. You know, by 2017, I ran my first hundred 2018 and 2019, I ran Western States, like 
kind of, you know, dove fully back into a sport again. Um, and got very fortunate that one, my body handled it pretty well Two, um, I had good support and guidance, um, and was really happy doing it. And that I wanted to like compete and see how I felt about racing and, and comparison and stacking up against people and, um, found that despite having this like long chunk of being in a kind of a dark place with overtraining, um, had kind of come, come out of that. It took a long time for me to one feel fresh again. Like I had a run where I was like, Oh, this is what freshness feels like. And it also took a long time. I think until honestly, like the last year or so to really feel like I could take myself seriously as an athlete again. And that's saying that as someone who just finished a three-year contract with Adidas and re-signed a three-year contract. So I've been, I said, I would say that I, people would assume, and I probably should be taking it seriously given that I have a contract, but I don't think it was until like the last 18 months or so that I was like, I think I'm healthy enough, like mentally to take myself seriously. Like I've, I've, my approach to ultra running up to this point has been kind of a, like a laid back casual approach, because if I don't, if I don't quote unquote care about it too much, I like can't get hurt by it. Mm-hmm. having done that in a totally different sport already. So I think it's kind of cool to like, feel like I'm at equilibrium with a lot of that. So I, I do stretch periodically now and I do try to drink my recovery drink now and I, you know, prioritize getting sleep. Um, so I think it's, it's a good place to be, but yeah, I have a long winding, like messy kind of ski and biathlon career that accelerated really rapidly and then like decelerated very rapidly. Mm. Um, but it's been kind of, I wanted to try ultra running in part two, cause I really love to travel and I love getting to see different countries on my feet. And so it was an opportunity too to like, do that, to go to Europe, to go to, I've gone to Hong Kong, I've gone to India. Um, I've gotten to travel to some really cool, weird places like with running now. And so places that I didn't get to go when I did skiing and biathlon, cause you race in Western Europe <laughs> when you do mm-hmm. biathlon. Um, so it's, it's very fun to get to be, um, in a sport that's taken me to some really cool places over the last three years. It, it seems, I mean, maybe it's just a matter of hindsight's 2020, that kind of thing. Um, but it's, it seems like maybe the, the leap from one to the other, isn't quite as far as I might want to make it out to be in my, in my brain. I think just being from the Midwest, um, I mean, there, there are people who do winter sports, but generally speaking, it's so far from my own little world that I'm like, you're all these ski things. Like, what are these things that you're strapping to your feet? You know, whereas like really like, it's just, you're another class of endurance runner or, or endurance athlete. It just, it, you know, it's not quite as devoid yeah. from the sport as as my no. brain wants to make it out to be. I mean I grew up in northern Wisconsin I grew up uh the American Berkebiner which is the largest ski race in North America mm-hmm. finishes on main street of the town I grew up in yeah so I grew up we call it I feel like they, they call them silent sports it's like oh things that are popular are like trail running and Nordic skiing and snowshoeing and open water kayaking like things that are like calm quote-unquote silent sports Mm -hmm. um like grew up in that those communities and so I don't think it was a big you know skiing to me is like it's like Minnesota like Minnesota cross-country skiers Courtney DeWalter cross-country skied in college Garrett Heath or not in college uh I don't know she didn't ski in college high school like high school skiers right that are currently ultra running are like Courtney DeWalter Steph Howe 
Uh, Garrett Heath is supposedly going to come run some trail stuff, you know, but has had a very good track career um, professionally. Like they all, they all grew up in the Minnesota cross-country ski world. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of funny looking back on, on those results because a bunch of, a little bit, a bunch of runners names, Ben True, uh, super good American um, road runner, skied, he skied collegiately, he skied at Dartmouth, but also grew up cross-country skiing in Minnesota. So there's like these weird endurance ties. And I think it's because cross-country skiers have an immense, not need, but they are really good at suffering because the sport hurts a whole lot. And so Mm -hmm. I think that, um, it's akin to like the 10 K runner in a lot of ways. Like you're good at every minute of that race hurts. It's a lot of minutes, you know, every rate, every minute of a six K hurts. Um, and it's not an insignificant amount of minutes to hurt for. And so I think that that translates super well to ultra running in which many minutes actually feel really good, but you could have an hour of feeling really terrible and mm-hmm. you like have, you've survived probably worse. So mm-hmm. I think that like inherently Nordic skiers have been trained to like thrive in those environments. As a uh, shameless plug for myself and not really myself, but taking it way back, uh, Stephanie Howe uh, was a very early guest on the podcast back in episode 19. So she's seeing her um, check that out. So uh, as we're wrapping up here, you'll get a different question than she did. Every year I do a different question that I ask every single guest for that season. Cool. Um, so this season's question uh, I'm asking everybody is, well, the question is because people don't do this enough. So I'm hoping you do talking about, um, kind of value judgments on racing how do you celebrate your wins oh so many different types of wins so many different ways to celebrate Mm -hmm. um i don't want to say food stuff because food shouldn't be a reward you should just enjoy food like point blank right so it's not it's not like that okay um celebrate my wins what kind of wins big wins little wins you you get you get to decide what that means it's a very open-ended question I'm not stumped. I will come up with something. <laughs> How do I celebrate my wins? I think you have to give yourself time to let them sink in a little bit because sometimes it might not feel like a win right away or it might not um, be like a, oh, I won the race type of win, right? Like I've won by like writing an aggressive email before where I was like, yes, I stood up for myself. That felt great. Um, but I do think it's important to, to let them sink in and to realize that you've done a good job. Um, because I don't think, I don't think wins are always this like really clear cut thing of like, you were the first to cross the finish line. Um, hopefully people have wins in there every day. Um, I, I used to have to keep an accomplishment journal <laughs> so that I like could check, you know, at the end of my day, be like, okay, like, what did I accomplish today? Mm-hmm. I need a positive, um, if you've been depressed, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but I do think that like, that's important to recognize that like wins and accomplishments aren't these big things. Sometimes they're, I put on hard pants today. Like I put on jeans right. or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but you know me, I'll also like be like, I get a mocha today. Cause I went for my long run in the rain. So I think it's like, you know, it can look different for different points in time and different, you know, styles of win. But I do think just like give yourself a moment to like, enjoy it and then you know kind of do whatever you got to do next corinne you do a lot of different things so i know there's a lot of 
different places that people can get in touch with you um, if they want to, you know, listen to more of what you have to say, read your stuff, any of that kind of stuff, where can they find you? Oh my goodness. Yes. I wear too many hats. Um, for sure. You can find me. I'm not creative. My name is my name. Um, if you can spell my name, you can find me. Um, and so I'm on Instagram at Corinne Malcolm. I'm pretty active on Twitter at Corinne Malcolm. Um, I don't, my, my like website and blog is pretty out of date, so I wouldn't necessarily use that. You can find my science writing at I run far under the running on science column. Um, and then you can find me, um, hosting the CTS train right podcast alongside Adam Pulford and the trail society podcast alongside Hillary Allen and Keely Henninger. Corinne, thanks for hanging out with me today. Yeah, it was amazing. Thank you.